We have a, uh, also developed a, in the, if you're interested, you'll see in the, in the book, there's a typology of, uh, of how actors in the theater uh, manipulate humanitarian action. And of course, donors, uh, external states, the host states, uh, third party states, non-state actors are very often um, in, in involved in instrumentalizing what's happening on the ground, but also our local communities who have their own interests in using uh, humanitarian action to, to their advantage. And aid agencies, international organizations, NGOs, local NGOs, advocacy groups. One of the tensions in particular that we've noted um, is the tension between the advocacy human rights groups and um, NGOs or aid agencies providing assistance. And of course, this passive instrumentalization, instrumentalization but not doing things, in addition to active instrumentalization. And one important uh, form of instrumentalization that we've identified that often gets overlooked is instrumentalization by storytelling. Uh, for example, if you look at the situation in, uh, in Sudan, Darfur, or in Afghanistan, uh, in Afghanistan it's even clearer than Sudan, the way in which the story was told at different times in the uh, um, history of the um, conflict defined uh, who the players were and how they would operate. And just to give one example, post-9-11, um, uh, post the story that was told was a story, this is a post-conflict situation, therefore there's no room for humanitarian players anymore. You have to work with the government. And of course, the more you tell this story that it's post-conflict, the more this story becomes disconnected from reality. And now, fortunately, nobody, or hardly anybody, still uses a post-conflict narrative. Now, Afghanistan is presented as a crisis that we are cautiously optimistic, but you know, problems remain, and these problems have to do, to a large extent, with a continuing conflict. Um, Instrumentalization, of course, is not a new thing. It's always been there. It was there in the Boer War, where you had a Red Cross. Uh, actually, this is not uh, necessarily a violation of, of the um, uh, uh, Geneva Conventions, but the, the, the kid in, uh, in uniform, kind of, you know, uh, child soldiers, that was a... a, a the, this one, of course, is a much more blatant... Um, uh, a violation of the code. This is the Red Cross in 1940, 1940 in Berlin with the swastika and the, the emblem uh, all wrapped into one. So the use of uh, humanitarian players and actors and, uh, and messages for political or military gain is something that is uh, uh, been going for a while. And now this is an example in Sri Lanka, if Sri Lanka in Afghanistan where the uh, uh, Afghan army is, uh, the, the uh, US American soldiers are in the background, but they were there as well. They go up to a village in northern Afghanistan and distribute goodies, and then issue a press release saying, the uh, Afghan National Army and their coalition partners were delivering humanitarian aid to the populations of Faryab. In exchange for the aid, they asked where the Taliban were hiding. So that's a clear uh, example of instrumentalization. And here is an example of perfidy, the misuse of the emblem. This is the uh, uh, Colombian operation to free Ingrid Betancourt and other um, hostages of the FARC, where they made an elaborate scam where they uh, transformed the uh, army helicopter into an ICRC one. 
so, um, so, is there a golden age? Was there a golden age? Our conclusion, and you know, we set up a straw dog, so it was easy to say there was no golden age, uh, that many of the pathologies of um, what we see today uh, are very much the same. That they're sort of, you know, the way in which Lord Byron uh, instrumentalized the, um, the nascent media in the UK and what Bernard Kushner did in the 1970s are very similar. Hearts and minds in Vietnam and Afghanistan also. Uh, have very, very much similarities. In fact, we, we haven't invented anything very new in terms of how hearts and minds in Afghanistan were um, <coughs> instrumentalized. The atrocitarians, this relates to the, uh, the, the furor about uh, massacres of Christians in Bulgaria in the 1860s, 1880s, 1860s. And, and the, the very much like the Save Darfur coalition, the media uh, and the public were collecting uh, money on trams uh, in the newspapers to organize an expedition to uh, Bulgaria to save the Christians, which of course then the Russians intervened and that went quite badly, but for a number of different reasons. Um, however, there are a number of qualitative, in particular, well, quantitative difference because the the humanitarian enterprise today is of a magnitude, uh, you know, it's worth 18 billion dollars a year, uh, and its institutionalization itself um, make it much more powerful and as a source of, uh, um, um, of potential instrumentalization. And it's key, it's in the center of conflict, whereas in the past it was in the, in the, on the fringes. And because of its institutionalization, it has uh, developed its own network power where the, the enterprise has to act like a business or act like a government or some people would say that uh, humanitarian action has become part of government uh, in itself. And perhaps the most glaring examples of instrumentalization in recent years are around the global war on terror uh, and how uh, humanitarians uh, were uh, there was an attempt to co-opt humanitarians in this uh, global war. Uh, but there are the, the uh, politicization, the attempt to incorporate uh, humanitarian action into wider designs is always there, and I'll return to that uh, uh, in a minute. So when I was giving a presentation on, on this book uh, in Berlin, Hugo was there, uh, someone said, that you know this book was full of gloom and doom of course we were focusing on the instrumentalization part and that in reality there is a golden age and it's now and you know I think we could argue this case are, are we better now than ever before in protecting this fundamental work that we do um, from um, from uh, uh, manipulation or um, has institutionalization itself uh, and the power that comes with it uh, created more forms of instrumentalization. So th th there's issues here which uh, um, you know, uh, keep some humanitarians awake at night. But you know, if you're an NGO and you have to uh, m balance the, the money that you're getting from states with your principles, that creates uh, very difficult questions as, for example, in um, when uh, Colin Powell um, said to the US NGOs, 
you are our force multipliers, you are part of our combat team, uh, NGOs were split down the middle. The fundraising people said, oh, we have to go there, you know, there's lots of money coming this way. And the policy people said, oh my God, no, this is uh, uh, unbearable. And the, um, I don't think that, the, more, that the, N the NGOs actually had a very strong moral compass to guide themselves through this complicated situation. Because many of the NGOs that would be brought into the, uh, the um, uh, global war on terror enterprise were you know, partly uh, in agreement philosophically or politically with the objectives that the U.S. government was... Uh, they were Wilsonian in the sense that they identified themselves with the foreign policy objectives of their government. But at the same time, they wanted to maintain some kind of uh, humanitarian principles, maybe not neutrality, but certainly a, a, an amount of, a large amount of impartiality and some independence. And so they, they, were, they were faced with really difficult issues. Uh, so one of the consequences of uh, the institutionalization has been that uh, the ethos with which we do things has changed. Um, we, humanitarian enterprise, have become a very networked enterprise. We are intrinsically linked with the way in which globalization functions, even if we're sometimes the sort of uh, critical voice of globalization. But de facto, uh, we are linked into, we are consubstantial with uh, globalization. But at the same time, what has happened is that the sort of voluntary nature of the enterprise um, particularly of NGOs has been lost on the altar of uh, institutionalization and professionalization which of course are good things in many ways but we've lost the flavor that's uh, allowed NGOs to be uh, a small player in uh, a context with providing essential services that were not seen as um, linked to a state agenda. NGOs tended to be state avoiding. Now you can ask yourself if uh, uh, Oxfam in particular, since we're in Oxford, uh, is Ox Oxfam still an NGO or is it a branch of the um, foreign policy of the UK government? Maybe that was clearer under Blair, but still, you know, the, 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 there is a kind of crossover politics <laughs> going on here between what NGOs are doing and what governments are doing. So, that's by way of background. Um, oh, and the other point I wanted to make is about the increasing remoteness between foreign NGOs, UN agencies, and the populations that they are there to support or assist in crisis countries. There is a, um, an expansion of the enterprise, but at the same time a physical withdrawal. In places like Afghanistan or Darfur or Southern Sudan or DRC, uh, NGOs are in bunkerized uh, compounds. Uh, the the um, mode of operation, because of security uh, concerns, obviously, has been increasingly in these fraught environments remote management. So it's kind of virtual humanitarian action, a bit like virtual war using drones. Well, that's a very real war, but you know, so I think remote management is the is to humanitarian action what drones are to military action. So there, there's some issues there about you know, how we conceive our role and wh what it means if we've lost this uh, proximity with the people that we are uh, supposed to be working with. 
Okay, a couple of examples of uh, um, dilemmas. Well, dilemmas, I think, uh, Hugo will correct me, dilemmas are actually situations where there's two bad options. Uh, is that correct? Yeah, okay. Uh, uh, these are not real dilemmas, and you know they can be couched as bad practice or, or awkward challenges or difficult moral choices, but not necessarily dilemmas of the Sophie's Choice uh, variety. And uh, if we look at, at these two examples that I'm going to show you, uh, you know you can ask. Are we better today uh, at dealing with some of these uh, difficult moral issues than in the past? I think in Afghanistan, partly because I was there, we were successful. In Sri Lanka, um, we were not successful in Afghanistan by any means, but in Sri Lanka, I think there are very, very serious issues that, uh, uh, that arose in the last phases of the war. So, this is a case of um, Afghanistan, in Western Afghanistan, 2000, 2001, there was a very serious drought and there was a um, population movement also triggered by, by conflict. And uh, what happened was that people concentrated in, uh, in camps and um, we, the UN agencies and the NGOs, were struggling with, the, with uh, should we create camps or not? That was the first question. So we tried to convince the Taliban that they should house the refugees in you know, existing structures. But people kept on coming, and they kept on f coming for a variety of reasons. Uh, one of the reasons was that assistance was being provided, so that acted as a, a pull factor. But uh, there was undoubtedly a very serious humanitarian need. And uh, um, what happened was that this huge camp, Maslak camp, emerged. This is a part of it. And the Taliban were saying, oh, there's more than 100,000 people here. You need to increase the, uh, the assistance that's being provided. At the same time, we knew that some of the food that WFP was providing was being diverted by the Taliban for their own uses, uh, including to feed combatants. So we were in a bit of a quandary. Should we try to keep assistance to a minimum? But then we would potentially face uh, riots that the Taliban could also orchestrate. Or do we go ahead, humanitarian imperative, uh, you know, close our eyes to uh, uh, the, uh, the diversion of the assistance? Of course, the donors weren't too happy with that. So in that particular instance, we were smart, and we, uh, we decided that a vaccination campaign was required. And by vaccinating all the kids in the camps, we had proxy indicators of how many people were there. And that showed that uh, there were not uh, 120,000 people, there were more like 80,000, maybe even 70,000, and that a large amount of assistance was being diverted. Then we faced another question, that do we say this to the Taliban, uh, and what's going to happen if they, you know, they were in the camps and they were orchestrating things, they were technically managing the camps. So we struggled and finally we came up with the best possible solution, which was to give warm food that was self-targeting. Uh, we set up baker, not bakeries, cooking stations where this gruel, which was not very good but the kids liked it, was being provided. But of course no Taliban fighter would want to be seen eating this, uh, this gruel. So in a sense we solved the problem, at least for a time. Manipulation continued uh, in other ways, but uh, I think we found a practical uh, solution to a, a difficult issue. In um, Sri Lanka, however, uh, things went uh, 
has anybody worked in Sri Lanka? Does anybody know Sri Lanka? Oh, okay. Uh, I, I haven't actually worked in Sri Lanka. I've been there a couple of times, and I've followed the last phases of the war. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, the, the, there was the culmination of a long process of 30 years of conflict. What well, the conflict goes back to independence, actually, and. Uh, uh, a number of failed peace process, processes and one of the questions that arises in Sri Lanka is to what extent the uh, um, the international community's insistence on trying to get the warring parties to talk to each other using aid as an incentive in, in effect backfired. Uh, but the, the issue that um, I think is important for us now to look at is what happened in the final phases of the war. And um, uh, as you probably remember, the uh, I don't have a map here, but uh, the Tamil Tigers uh, controlled the northeast of the country. And when um, Rajapaksa was elected in 2008, seven, eight, I think it was eight, uh, he basically, um, although there was still a, technically a ceasefire between the two sides, it wasn't very well respected decided to go for a, a final uh, military approach to solving the problem. And what was interesting was the extent to which they developed a sophisticated narrative, talk about instrumentalization by story storytelling, about how this was a humanitarian war, how uh, no civilian casualties were, there was zero tolerance for civilian casualties, and how somehow they were able to convince the donors, or some of the donors, or certainly the key players, um, the US, India, China, uh, Pakistan, who all had interests in Sri Lanka, that um, this was the way to go. And of course the Tigers had lost whatever legitimacy they had and whatever um, support they had outside the Tamil diaspora around the world. They had no friends and that in a sense allowed um, uh, the government to the Colombo government to pursue its strategy. This was combined with a, a discourse that equated NGOs and to some extent the UN with neo-imperialist uh, control of the country and how uh, Colombo was asserting its sovereignty and uh, basically was able to say no to uh, uh, Western donors because China is here to help us. That was one element. The other element was how Rajapaksa and his uh, clique or regime were able to couch the conflict in the north as part of the global war on terror. So again, a, 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 a instrumentalization by storytelling. Uh, and uh, of course the LTTE in the north was equally um, culpable of instrumentalizing humanitarian action over long periods of time. They were controlling what was entering the, the territory that was that they were controlling and they were quite abusive in, uh, in um, um, you know, using uh, um, assistance as, uh, you know, it's fungible so it supported their, uh, their military efforts and forcible recruitment of, of child soldiers, etc, etc. So what happened in September 2008 is particularly uh, from a, the perspective of the people who were on the ground, and I've interviewed a number of them, the kind of challenges and, and moral uh, quandaries that they were put in. In September, 
the government basically um, told all expatriate personnel to leave the north because they could no longer assure their security. And what happened there was that on the one hand, the government was prepared to allow, at least in theory, the UN agencies, the NGOs and their national staff to leave, but the LTTE blocked the national staff from, uh, from leaving the, the Vani, the, northwest, the northeast of the country. And, and so that created a first split in the community on how do we handle this dramatic issue of uh, families being torn apart and in, in effect many uh, staff decided to stay with their family uh, and, and that's also how a lot of the information subsequently came out through uh, national staff aid workers who were there. Uh, but so very quickly the, there was a split in the aid community about what to do. Should we continue to negotiate access or do we speak out about the indiscriminate shelling that the government is doing on this rapidly um, decreasing area controlled by the Tamils where there were uh, no, uh, no fire zones and where all the medical uh, facilities, hospitals were, you know, the GPS coordinates had been given to the Colombo uh, military forces and in, and the government says, yes, yes, no, no, no civilian casualties. But there was documented evidence that uh, uh, hospitals were being shelled. And for a number of reasons, the UN agencies uh, were not keen to speak out. Uh, one reason was that, of course, the LTT didn't have any friends. Another reason was that the development agencies in Colombo were keen to maintain the uh, their their relationship with the government that they would have to continue to work with in the past and were not prepared to uh, anger the government by raising uh, issues of human rights violations. But even the, um, whether it was lack of leadership or incompetence or just pusillanimity, I don't know, the, the, aid, the humanitarian aid agencies were reluctant to speak out. And, and I think that's one of the looking back and interviewing people who were there, particularly the, uh, the UN and NGO staff who were in Kilinochi and then had to be evacuated, and some witnessed the carnage that was going on as they were retreating from that area. Uh, for me, it's incomprehensible to understand why the uh, um, aid agencies didn't speak out more or didn't uh, convince the Secretary General or the media or the donors in Washington or, uh, <laughs> or, or London to speak out more of what was happening. So only a handful of, uh, of aid personnel argued for, um, uh, for pushed for a full exposure of the direct impact of the war on civilians. So, uh, you know, I think uh, maybe it was a kind of a wicked problem where there was no easy solution. But with the benefit of hindsight, I think one can ask: uh, Could things have gone differently? Could the the balance between the objectives of access and the objectives of protection be handled differently. Was too much focus put on access, on getting in, on being able to provide assistance, and not enough on the plight of civilians who were being shelled and uh, or roped into uh, camps or... So that's a... Um, you know, a dilemma that... Um, uh, maybe is the shape of things to come because what we faced in Sri Lanka is a um, uh, this 
picture here is placards for the May Day celebration last year in, uh, or maybe the year before, uh, 2010 in, uh, in Colombo. These are the friends of Rajapaksa, uh, Chavez, Fidel, Gaddafi, Putin, and I forget who's the Chinese uh, uh, president of the time. Uh, and uh, basically this was a message that Sri Lanka was giving that um, you know, we are a sovereign state, a state, we are able to coordinate and uh, provide the framework for aid and we don't want Ban Ki-moon or uh, human rights NGOs uh, to come and tell us what we should be doing. And that is a trend that we're seeing elsewhere as well. Um, we're seeing it very clearly in, in places like Sudan but you also see it in more muted ways in, um, in Nepal, you see it in, even in Afghanistan where the government now, because of the uncertainty of what's likely to happen in 2014 and beyond, is now affirming its sovereignty and uh, um, trying to provide uh, barriers to uh, the entry or the work of aid agencies. So I think one of the conclusions that we talk about in the book, but that also you know Sri Lanka reminds us of, is the changing relationship between the humanitarian enterprise and the state. And this relationship is rapidly changing. On the one hand, Western agencies are increasingly coaxed, wittingly or unwittingly, into becoming servants of the state in the pursuit of liberal peace agendas and many NGOs sort of because that's where the money is in Afghanistan, in Iraq, elsewhere we've seen that happening uh, and the, the agencies that are able to withstand this pressure of being incorporated in, uh, in state uh, strategies or liberal peace strategies are, are, are few and far between. It's the ICRC because ICRC although it gets money from uh, Western donors is, is able to launder this money and to make it neutral and impartial and independent. Uh, and, and a few NGOs like Médecins Sans Frontières who, as a matter of policy, refuse to take money from belligerent states. If you look at Afghanistan today, um, all the major donors in Afghanistan, except Switzerland, are belligerents in Afghanistan. And of course that creates you know, interesting discussions between NGOs and, uh, and, uh, and diplomatic personnel about you know, who is doing what and why, and uh, clearly the, uh, the embassies are keeping an eye on what their NGOs are doing. Oh, I have to tell you a, a small anecdote. Uh, uh, about the PRTs. The PRTs are provincial reconstruction teams in Afghanistan, which are kind of a military-civilian hybrid that is supposed to provide basic services to local populations, sometimes services of a humanitarian nature, but very much part of the hearts and minds um, exercise. So I was at a conference in Norway a couple of years back, and uh, government officials were talking about the great work that the Norwegian PRT up in Faria was doing. When a couple of NGOs in the room started saying, well, you know, this is, not, this is a violation of our codes, we don't want to be involved in this, and, uh, you know, it, it's going to look worse in a few years from now, you know, it might look okay now, but these things, you know, the chicken come home to roost kind of argument. So the Minister of Defense who was there got up and said, no, 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 you don't understand. The, the PRT needs the NGOs around it. So basically saying that the NGOs were there to protect the PRT from the population, which is an interesting uh, <laughs> twist in, in, uh, in reality. And of course, 
NGOs were split on uh, on how to manage these situations, and those who compromised or who agreed to be the uh, the implementing partners of PRT or government projects are now finding, because of the instrumentalization by storytelling, that they are in a difficult, if not dangerous, position. Because how are they going to re-establish their credibility if the political dispensation in uh, in Kabul changes all of the all of a sudden? Basically, uh, what uh, I think we have seen happening over these past 20 years of massive growth of the inter humanitarian enterprise is that we are much more um, predictable, um, competent, professionalized in addressing humanitarian issues. But the basic challenges, the basic um, uh, clash between prag pragmatism and uh, of the real politic kind of approach and the ethical values of uh, uh, the humanitarian message, these, this clash remains unresolved. And, and maybe, uh, I don't know, but maybe this is a question for you, uh, is this clash bigger and more worrying today than it was in the past because of the quantitative and qualitative, cha qualitative changes that have happened? Or is it, are we sort of on the same kind of level of instrumentalization as the past? Uh, I, I think that one should look at how the enterprise has changed, the humanitarian enterprise has changed, in terms of how stubbornly self-referential self it remains, how stubbornly embedded it is in Western modes of uh, thought, but also of, uh, of uh, organization, of uh, network power that comes with this organization. And, and I think, but you know, um, uh, I, I'm not sure I'm right, that this clash, this tension between principles and pragmatism is bigger uh, today than it was in the past, partly because of the huge size of the enterprise. So if uh, this clash, this tension between uh, the, the moral values that somehow seem to be universal, I mean, our studies uh, on the perceptions and uh, the listening project and other projects that have looked at <coughs> whether the humanitarian message resonates around the world uh, seem to conclude that uh, you know, th th there's a humanitarian substratum that is common to all cultures but it's the baggage, it's the organization, it's the way in which money flows, it's the, uh, the, the, the surrogate sovereignty that humanitarian agencies sometimes uh, um, provide that is the, the, the cause of tension between the outsiders and the local populations. So, you know, um, it, what we have seen is that despite the best intentions, this tension is always there. So you could ask yourself, is instrumentalization fundamentally in the DNA of humanitarian action, or is it possible to conceive of uh, a change in the way in which uh, the enterprise functions that would make it uh, a more equal relationship or a relationship that uh, is uh, not based on the dominant nature of uh, the, uh, um, the you know the, the the unbalanced relationship between the giver and the receiver um, I, I think that's uh, one argument that has been made by uh, Mark Duffield and others is that 
um, there's a clash between a deontological duty-bound approach to humanitarianism and the consequentialist approach. You know, do we look at what we're doing now, saving lives now, or should we look at what the consequences are of uh, saving lives uh, of what we do now for the future? And this clash also has not been resolved. What, uh, what Duffield is saying is that basically the humanitarian deontological message is a very clear one. You know, if you, it, it, it's clear, evident, and the way in which it was portrayed in, in the public imaging, for example, during the Sahel famine in the 1980s, was a very simple message. We need to go and help our brothers and sisters who are suffering. The consequentialist um, agenda is uh, more complicated, and uh, um, it's probably li it's probably more political. It's more linked to um, the um, the ethical foreign policy that Tony Blair was talking about when he came to power in uh, in when was it 97. Uh, and that was clearly, and the way in which um, DFID reorganized itself in those years was all about consequentialist issues. It was about, you know, ad addressing root causes and dragging the humanitarian duty-bound people into addressing root causes potentially creates a clash of principles and a clash of... Uh, uh, we always have to deal with... Uh, um, a politicized environment. We are, when we work in crisis situations, the context by definition is extremely political. But if, uh, as in Afghanistan, you're uh, dealing with uh, advocacy, you're dealing with uh, uh, working with the government on structural violence issues, on gender, on, uh, on advocating for better policies, that may be a completely legitimate activity in itself. But in a country in crisis, it puts you uh, in a difficult position if you are also claiming that you want to do humanitarian work according to principle, when all your offices are in government-held uh, territory, all your money comes from uh, uh, donors that are also belligerent. So I think that there is an argument about uh, uh, being more deontological in certain situations. I'm going to wrap up. Because the, the enterprise has grown so much and because humanitarianism has transitioned from being a powerful discourse, a discourse that everybody can understand, to a discourse of power, a, a discourse where we are part of the powerful people who can decide on your fate, the, you know, and, and the triage that comes with it is uh, also a manifestation of humanitarian power. So has the humanitarian... Uh, the very simple, clear, convincing, powerful message of, uh, of humanitarianism, has it been lost now with the complexity of uh, everything that is, um, is uh, linked to humanitarianism, whether you know, the, the tension between the negotiating access and advocating for rights, for example, is a continuing tension that uh, uh, in some cases uh, makes um, access and addressing need much more difficult. So uh, the question here, um, I, I put Les Mansal there because the last time I saw Hugo, he talked about Simone de Beauvoir and Simone Veil. So I'm going to talk about Jean-Paul Sartre. Uh, Les Mansal is a play that's probably not shown much anymore uh, by Jean-Paul Sartre. And it's a story of uh, 
a communist militant, young, and who needs to prove himself, who is tasked with killing a uh, bourgeois uh, politician, who is well-meaning but linked to a bourgeois view of things. And what's interesting in uh, in this play is the the tension between purity and collaboration, and it's a tension that we see uh, a lot in humanitarian action. And, and you know, we have to dirty our hands by speaking to the Taliban, by speaking to uh, the LTTE, by uh, you know sitting down even with very very long spoons, with you know eating from the same plate as uh, people that we find um, um, objectionable, uh, and. Uh, the ambiguity in the play is that it's unclear whether the guy kills the bourgeois reactionary um, uh, gentleman because he's bourgeois and reactionary and because the party told him to him, or because he's kissing his wife, you know, kissing the wife of the killer. So you're, you're left with this ambiguity, and this the fundamental similar ambiguity in, in, uh, in the humanitarian endeavor where we have, as Giorgio Agamben says, we have this secret solidarity with the people that uh, we are really supposed to be fighting. But somehow we have to engage with them, and this engagement is um, the, the, the ethical terrain that we have to navigate very often, and that is uh, quite difficult to, negative, to, to navigate. So, um, what, what, is there a solution to this tension between principles uh, and practice and this uh, uh, deontological versus consequentialist ethic. Uh, and would a return, going back to basics, would uh, that provide a way forward to you know, maintain a kind of protected niche for the deontologist to work in crisis uh, fraught situations? And you know, the others have very important things to do, but uh, let's not call them humanitarian, let's call them something else. So um, I think I'll stop here and leave you with uh, a, an example of fleecing in progress. <laughs> Antonio, thank you very much. Thank you.